Matthew 15 is the passage this morning. The first of the Gospels, the 15th chapter of that Gospel. I'm sure that you've observed, as we've seen Matthew's descriptions of Jesus, how gracious the Lord is in all of his dealings with people. He just seemed to know how to do the right thing at the right time. He always said the right thing, unlike some of us that were born with a silver foot in our mouth. The Lord just seemed to know what to say and when to say it. He was always at ease. He was never uptight. He was always relaxed with people. And as we've seen, that came not from his deity, though he was God. He never acted on his deity. He never drew upon that side of his person. He always acted as man dependent upon God. And therefore, he didn't have an edge on us. We can act as he act. And if you, like I, struggle with some of your relationships and ability to get along with people and say the right thing at the right time, it's encouraging to know that uh, we can learn from our Lord how to deal with all kinds of human circumstances, and we can draw upon the same source of power that he had, the indwelling life of our Lord himself. Now let's turn to Matthew 15, and we want to begin reading with the 21st verse. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept saying to him, Send her away, for she's shouting after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. The Lord uh, withdrew from Galilee. In fact, he left uh, Israel after spending an an extended period of time ministering to his own, the Jewish nation, in the southern part of that country in Galilee. He, uh, He left Galilee and he traveled over to the west, to the west coast, the Mediterranean coast, to the land of the Phoenicians. These were Gentiles. There were very few Jews there. The Phoenicians were known in history as uh, great colonizers, traders, merchants. They built great ocean-going vessels and traveled all over the Mediterranean and established colonies in North Africa. But uh, after the Roman conquest, they were known for very little other than their immorality. That seemed to remain. And they were a notoriously wicked people in terms of of moral standards, and certainly that would be true of Jewish moral standards. And it seems odd that the Lord should go to that particular place in the world and leave his own, leave Galilee, but that's where he went. 
And Mark tells us when he, when he arrived in the territory of Tyre and Sidon, he found a home in which to live. Perhaps he rented a house or an apartment of some sort, and his disciples moved in with him, and he began to teach them. Now, the reason he made this move is because he was under attack in Galilee. The people that had been so uh, attracted to him when he fed the 5,000 now were disenchanted, disaffected. They were moving away, and Herod was after him to take his life. And so the Lord withdrew for a period of time to buy time in order to train his disciples. He saw that his departure was imminent. It was only a matter of time before he faced the cross. And so he withdrew in order to train the disciples and prepare them for the task that lay ahead. They were, as Paul puts it, the foundation stones of the church. They had to lay the foundation for God's family. And he needed to prepare them for that uh, for that task. And so he withdrew, found a house, and began to teach them. But before long, someone came knocking on the door, and it was this young Canaanite. Matthew describes her here as a Canaanite, a native of the land, an aborigine. She that would invoke all of the uh, memories of Canaanite culture and the and the evil of that particular group of people. Mark uh, describes her as a Greek. In other words, she was a high-class Phoenician, trained, perhaps, in Greek philosophy. And in the Jewish mind, she would be an atheist or an agnostic, someone who had rejected God and was basically a humanist. And uh, she's the one who approaches Jesus. I think if we were to dress her in contemporary clothes, she would look uh, very much like women we see every day on the streets of Boise during the noon hour, independent, self-reliant career women, smartly dressed, attractive. And she came to the door asking for help, but the Lord doesn't respond. And that's so unlike our Lord, who's so compassionate. But he doesn't even acknowledge her presence. And finally she begins to annoy the disciples and so they appeal to the Lord, send her away, she's ruining our Bible study, get rid of her. She's noisy. And uh, so the Lord apparently goes to the door and opens a conversation with her by saying, don't you know that I'm only sent to the lost sheep of Israel? You see, what the Lord was doing was putting into his words the thoughts that were in the mind of the apostles. That's exactly what they were thinking. We're the privileged people. Messiah came to us. And that's good theology. And that's the theology in which they had been trained. They believed it. Salvation was from the Jews. And uh, the Lord is simply stating what was in their mind. She was outside. She was a pariah. Wicked. Uh, didn't love the law. Didn't go to the synagogue. Wasn't religious. Didn't have any interest in spiritual things. Pagan. We have the Messiah. Salvation is of the Jews. And the Lord simply states what they were thinking. But uh, she continues to cry out because she doesn't care at all for theology. That doesn't meet her need. She just says, Lord, help me. I don't know about your purpose in coming to Israel. I don't understand all those deep things. Just help me. My child is sick. 
And so the Lord continues in this uh, strange line of conversation. He says, don't you understand that the children must be fed before the dogs? Again, that sounds so harsh. doesn't sound like the Lord. Unless we understand that the Lord was actually teasing her a little bit. Because the term that's used for dogs here is not uh, the word for these big uh, mangy mutts that were out in the street, the scavengers that that uh, the Jews usually identified with Gentiles. They call the Gentiles dogs in that uh, pejorative sort of way. The term he uses is a diminutive. It means a little puppy. He says, don't you understand that you have to feed the children before you feed the puppies? You don't take food that's placed on the table for the children and give it to the pups. And she says, I believe, with the same vein of humor, yes, Lord. But even the pups get fed from the scraps. And I think she was thinking of that time-honored tradition in which children slipped food under the table to the little dogs. I've always, I did it when I was growing up and tried to keep my parents from seeing me take a piece of meat or something and slip it to the dog under the table. And the Lord looks at her and he says, You have great faith. That's really interesting when you see it in contrast to what he said to Peter in the chapter, just in the paragraph just prior, the chapter before. He calls him a man of little faith. But here he says, of, of this woman, you have great faith. It will be as you wish. And when she went home, she found that her daughter had been cured. The Lord healed her. Now, all of this was for the disciples, you see. The disciples had written her off. That woman's not interested in spiritual things. She's a Greek. She's irreligious. She doesn't go to church. She doesn't have any interest in God. She's outside. And they had written her off, but the Lord saw her heart. Just as he sees the heart of people today that we would consider on the outside, they're not our kind of people. They aren't religious folk. They don't go to church. They could care less. They don't read the Bible. They live in the fast lane. They, uh, they're... Nights consist of uh, disco dancing and bar hopping, and you know, they don't have any interest in spiritual things. And furthermore, they're not our kind of people, so why should we even get involved? Why mingle? Why get to know them? Why be, befriend them? Because they don't have any interest in spiritual things. But you see what God saw is that way down deep inside, where no one could see it, this woman had a deep hunger for God. She tried everything. He was her last resort. Finally, after exhausting all of her options, she came to the Lord and asked for help. And the Lord met her need. And that was all for the disciples. See, he's preparing them for the task that lay ahead. Now, Matthew continues, tells us in verse 32 that Jesus summoned to him, whoops, excuse me, verse 29. And departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up to the mountain, he was sitting there. Mark gives us more detail on this trip. He uh, he left uh, Phoenicia and he traveled up through what today would be Syria, crossed the Jordan Valley and down on the east side of the Jordan Valley over into another Gentile area known as the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. This was Greek territory again, part of the Roman Empire outside of, of Israel, and therefore populated almost entirely by Gentiles. These were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And it's important to keep that in mind. The Lord is skirting around Herod's territory to stay out of his way, again, to buy time to train the disciples. 
And as he was teaching them, that's what's meant by the phrase he was sitting there, great multitudes came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So that the multitude marveled as they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. That phrase, the God of Israel, would only come from a Gentile's mouth. That's not a Jewish expression. These were Gentiles, and they saw the Lord healing them. Uh, they brought their lame, and their they're dumb and they're blind, they're sick, and the Lord healed them, and they gave glory to God, to the God of Israel. Apparently, this was the same region that the Gadarene maniac had evangelized. Remember, he was the man that the Lord healed, who wanted to accompany the Lord and his disciples, and the Lord sent him back into his own country, and he went throughout that territory telling everyone what great things God had done for him. Well, this was that region, and these people were prepared. So when the Lord began to teach, great multitudes gathered. They brought the sick and the lame, and the Lord touched them and healed. Now, Matthew gives us just a general picture of this healing ministry, but Mark gives us uh, more detail. He takes one man out of this crowd and describes his plight. If you want to follow along with me, it's in Matthew 7, verse 31. And again, verse 31, And again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they entreated him to lay his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude by himself. And put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said, said to him, Ephathah, that is, be, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Matthew takes uh, one individual out of the crowd and shows us how the Lord dealt with him. And here you have another example of the gracious way in which the Lord meets our needs. This man was, was deaf and dumb. He lived in a world of silence. He couldn't hear. He couldn't ask questions. He didn't know what was going on. He just knew that he was miserable and in need of help. Uh, I, I'm partially deaf in one ear, and I, I know how embarrassing it is to be deaf. You have to ask people to speak up, and you don't hear half of what they say, and you miss things that they say, and, but you're afraid to say anything because you don't want to look dumb, and, and life just sort of goes by, and, and you miss a great deal of it. This man missed almost all of life. He's isolated. He's living in a world of silence. And the Lord takes him aside from the group so as not to embarrass him, and he begins to minister to him. Uh, two years ago, when I first came here to Cole, one of the members of the congregation asked me to call on an elderly relative that they had who was staying in a convalescent home. And I went out to talk to her. I've since forgotten her name, but she was uh, infirm, bedridden, and deaf. But I didn't know it when I walked into the room, so I began to chatter, and, and she didn't respond. So... Uh, I got real close to her, and I said, uh, Mrs. Smith, do you know who I am? And she didn't respond. 
And so I began to introduce myself. And by this time, people in the ward were sitting up in their beds looking at me, and people were beginning to gather in the hallway, and a couple rolled their wheelchairs in because I was shouting at the top of my lungs, and she kept saying, Ah, what? And I said, Mrs. Smith, do you know the Lord Jesus? And all these heads came up, and uh, <laughs> nurses began to gather at the foot of the bed, and Finally, I got down on my knees beside her bed, and I was shouting right into her ear. I was about that far away from her, saying, Mrs. Smith, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? It's the most embarrassing moment of my life. <laughs> and for her, she almost came unglued when she realized what I was doing. But, see, the Lord didn't do it that way. He was much more sensitive. <laughs> and he took this dear guy off to the side, and he does some interesting things. First, he puts his fingers in his ears. And then he touches his fingers, licks his fingers, and he, and he puts the saliva on this man's tongue. And then he looks up to heaven and he sighs. Do you see what he's doing? He's trying to communicate with this man. Before he says a word, he wants to convey to him what he's going to do. He touches his fingers his ears, rather, to show him that he's going to heal him. His hearing will return. And then he touches his tongue to show him that by his words, he's going to restore the gift of speech to the man. And then he looks to heaven to indicate that that power comes from God, and he sighs as a sign of his identification with this man and his compassion for him. And then, seeing the light of comprehension dawn in his eyes and seeing the faith in his eyes, he speaks and the man can hear. And he begins to speak immediately, which in itself is extraordinary because most deaf people have to learn how to speak all over again. But this man's speech is restored to him immediately. And you see how wise and wonderful the Lord is and how compassionate and understanding. Here this man had been on the outside for so long and no one cared. No one realized he had any spiritual needs. His heart had cried out over the years for someone to spend time with him, someone to minister to him, but everyone was too busy. Who wants to spend time shouting at a deaf man? So he was isolated outside, but the Lord drew him in. And all of this was for the disciples, you see. Then as we go back to Matthew, verse 32. We read that Jesus summoned to himself his disciples and said, I feel compassion for the multitude because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not wish to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where would we get so much, so many loaves in a desert place to satisfy such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And he directed the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples in turn to the multitudes, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven full baskets. And those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. And you say, haven't I heard this before? Well, yes, you have. In chapter 14, you have the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but there are some marked differences. There, of course, the number is different. There are 5,000 men instead of 4,000. And uh, 
Uh, it was in a different location. The feeding of the 5,000 was along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This was in Decapolis. And the 5,000 that were fed before were all Jews. And these were all Gentiles. Which explains why the disciples let them go hungry for three days. If you go back to chapter 14, it was the disciples who came to Jesus on the first day, in the evening of the first day, and said, Lord, they're hungry. Let's feed them. In this case, they waited three days, and the Lord was the one who took the initiative and said, let's feed them. Because the disciples did not care. They would have sent them away hungry. But the Lord saw their need. And so he says to the disciples, do you have anything to feed them? And they said, well, no, just seven loaves, a few fish. So the Lord takes the loaves and he gives thanks. You ever ask yourself what he gave thanks for? Well, he just thanked his heavenly father that there was enough to go around. And he started breaking the loaves and handing them out to the disciples. And the disciples fed the multitude. Now, the Lord could have very well walked through the crowd and distributed the bread himself, but he didn't. He did it through the disciples because he wanted them to have a part in the feeding of this multitude. He wanted them to have contact with these Gentiles. He wanted them to see that they could be used to minister to people that were outside of Israel, the untouchable, the irreligious, those who didn't care about spiritual things. But they did, see, and the Lord saw it. He saw the clamant need of their heart. And he meets that need through the disciples. And Matthew tells us that they gathered seven large baskets. He uses a different word than Matthew than he uses in, uh, in the 14th chapter. There it's a small bag, the equivalent of what we would call a tote bag today. Here it's seven large baskets, the sort of baskets that merchants use to carry their wares to the market. And so these Gentiles went back to their, to their home, carrying with them adequate and adequate supply of bread to meet their needs on the return journey. The Lord saw to it that all their needs were met. Now what do we learn from this story? Well, in the first place we learn that the whole world is our kind of people. Unfortunately, we have a tendency to divide the world into our kind of people and them. And we refer to some people as those who are not our kind of people because they, they aren't religious. They don't go to church. They live in the fast lane. They don't have our moral standards. They don't look like we do. They don't keep house like we do. They don't raise their kids like we do. We draw a line and we say, everybody who meets our standards is my kind of people, and everybody else is on the outside. And the Lord wants us to see that, that we're all the same kind of people. We all have needs. They're just different. That's all. The Lord has simply gathered us in and given us a name, not because we're anything special, but simply because he saw our need and reached out to us and we responded. But we're just like everybody else in the world. We're capable of any sin. We could fall into any... Uh, any, uh, any area of, of disobedience. We're capable of anything. I heard, heard a, a young lady who was a, 
a Christian leader among women on the West Coast speaking not too long ago, and she made the statement, I'm capable of doing anything. I'm capable of being an adulteress. I'm capable of committing murder. People sort of gasped and shook their head, no, particularly those that knew her well. They thought, oh, she'd never do that. But she said, I could. I could. And the extent to which I disregard that truth is the extent to which I cannot relate to people who do fail. That's that's a keen insight. The thing that keeps us from identifying with and relating to people on the outside is that we think we would not do those things. But we would. We're capable of anything. Because the church is made up of people who have failed miserably in their past. We're not a bunch of people who have accomplished a great deal and thus qualified ourselves in God's eyes. We're just people who are needy, beggars looking for bread someplace, and the Lord has met our need. And we may be down and out and up and out. It doesn't make any difference. We're all the same. We're all needy. We're all capable of anything. I, I mentioned when we were studying 1 Corinthians that I uh, was in, in a Bible study once when a friend of mine read 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know, he says, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Paul's point is that, is that there were people that were listening to the reading of his letter, uh, people in the church in Corinth who were adulterers, had been adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, swindlers, every sort of person. And uh, the man who was leading the study said to this group of people, how many of you would be willing to admit that you were that kind of person and hands went up all around the room. And there was a fellow sitting there who at that time was not yet a Christian. Now he is, but then he wasn't. And as he looked around the room, his response was, Man, these are my kind of people. And you see, that's what the Lord wants us to see. That's the only kind of people there are in the world. We're all needy. We all fail. We're all weak. We all hurt. We're all in desperate need. And understanding that, enables us to identify with people that are failing and weak and struggling out there. So we can't make that division division between us and them or our kind of people. The whole world has our kind of people. The second thing I want to say is that we need to do something very practical to reach out into that sphere of our community. We mustn't just accept truth here and live on it and keep it to ourselves. We've got to be willing to venture ourselves and go out where the need is and take the bread of life there where the hunger is. And those needs exist all around us. You, you don't have to look very far. You can go down to any of the parks on the weekend and see this crowd of dear kids sitting down there listening to their stereos and smoking pot and the whole world just thinks of them as bombs. But they're there. And they're needy. And as far as I know, no one has penetrated that particular group of people. There's no outreach there. What about the gay community in our city? Are we doing anything there? Is anyone venturing into that area? Anyone concerned about that, that group of desperate, 
desperately needy people? Or what about some of the up-and-outers, the legislature, and the businessmen and women of this town? What are we doing? Or the socially deprived, the poor and the indigent, what are we doing there? See that? Some of us would say, well, that's not that kind of people. That's not my economic level. But they're here, and their needs are vast. I, a couple of days ago, or weeks ago, I was walking down 43rd Avenue toward the river, and uh, there's a little boy sitting by the irrigation ditch. The cutest little guy, about four years old, had uh, you know, straw-colored hair. He was just sitting there watching some branches float by. And so I sat down beside him, struck up a conversation with him. We started chatting. He was a little bit uh, defensive at first, but then he opened up and he just jabbered away. And, and after a while I had to go, and so I went on down toward the river. And I got about a block away and I heard this scream coming out of one of those trailers. And this woman ran out of the trailer and she grabbed this little boy by the head and she shook him about four or five times and screamed in his face and swore at him and then dragged him to the trailer and threw him in the trailer and slammed the door. And boy, my first thought was to run back there and say, hey, lady, if you don't want him, I'll take him. It just made me mad. But then I started thinking, you know, that that's a frustrated woman. Her husband probably doesn't love her. She lives shut up in that little trailer in the heat. She's probably no one has ever talked to her about raising children, and her children are just a frustration and a pain in the neck to her. And she's probably filled with guilt because she does lose her temper with that little boy. And what can we do to help her? I don't know what to do. I just think up ideas. You all do them. <laughs> what? Why can't we send someone down there to, to help some of these women learn how to raise their children and then use that as a door to introduce them to the gospel and to the Lord who does all things well? See? Now, that's the second thing I want to say. There's just a big area there of need, and we need to move to meet that need. And God will let you know the area that you're to be involved in. And thirdly, I would say that we need to to remember the resources that we command because we belong to the Lord. Uh, my reaction to any sort of challenge like this is, well, I don't know. I don't really have what it takes. I wouldn't know how to relate to someone like that. I don't, I don't have the resources to do it. You see, what the Lord taught the disciples through the feeding of the 4,000 is that it all depends upon him. Someone came to the disciples and said, I, I, I want some bread. Then the disciples go back to the Lord, and he breaks off a piece of bread, and they take it to the individual. The Lord didn't expect them to act on their own resources. The bread came from the Lord. The supply comes from him. The resources reside in him. And therefore, all these demands upon us are ultimately demands upon him. So that when you look around you in your office, in your classroom, your neighborhood, and you see all these needs, and you tend to shrink. Remember, he's the one who dispenses the bread. All we have to do is go and get what we need to meet the particular demand that we're facing at that moment.